Uh, so turn, turn if you would to Hebrews chapter nine, verses one through fourteen. Hebrews nine, one through fourteen. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence, it is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, an Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat, of these things, we cannot, cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, uh, again, we come to a text that uh, contains many foreign things that might be strange to us. Uh, and so we pray that your spirit would be at work now to give us understanding, not just of the uh, sort of bare meaning of this passage, but how you want to speak to us this morning, to renew us, to bring us to a greater sense of our need for your grace and for a greater understanding of the glory of Christ and your kindness toward us in him. So be at work, uh, we pray now, in all of us, in all the various situations that we are facing, suffering, joy, hardship, comfort, confusion, big decisions, whatever we might be facing, speak to us now, we pray, and we, we want to be open to what you have to say to us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, one thing I've learned um, as, a, as a person, as a human, but maybe perhaps more so as a pastor, is that you can't, un, uh, you can't outrun your problems and your mistakes. Right. That, I, I love that phrase, wherever you go, there you will be. You always take you with you. 
Um, I remember meeting with a young woman years ago that um, was just constantly moving to new places. And every time uh, she would go to one place, it would go well for a while, and then she would find after a time uh, the same sort of relational problems would crop up and she would uh, decide it's time to move on and maybe it'll be different in the next place that I go. And uh, we talked through that and, and she just she just couldn't avoid this cycle of just moving on. Maybe it'll be better somewhere else. And I resonate with that. I mean, in my life, I can think about the, the challenges in my character, um, the, the patterns of relationships I've found myself falling into over and over again, how, how there's this temptation to just kind of run away and move on to new places and new people and just hope this time it's not going to be like that. And I think a lot of us are, that's kind of how we function. We, we try to outrun our, our problems. Our problems bring a lot of shame and guilt into our lives, and um, we run from that as well. But I think what we find is that a life lived running from our problems, whether it's our immaturity or our failures, whatever it might be, um, it ends up being a life that misses what we are made for. It doesn't matter if you are a religious person or a secular person, all of us have this tendency to run from our problems and end up missing what we are made for. You can be a devout Christian and uh, you can even use the, the things that God tells us to do as a means of avoiding your brokenness and corruption. You can live for yourself, chasing after what you think will make you happy, going from this place to that place, from this desire to that desire, and it just leads to dark places. And in the end, we all end up just bringing death into the world chaos, brokenness. We miss our purpose. And the reason for that is that the Bible tells us that we all have this corruption, this bentness, this crookedness at the core of who we are. That's ultimately the problem that we try to run away from. The Bible calls this iniquity, this crookedness. Something's not right in the thing that drives everything that we do. I mean, have you ever asked yourself, what is wrong with me? Why does this keep happening? Why do I keep feeling this way? Why do I keep acting this way? Why can't I just straighten this all out? And the Bible tells us that's exactly what we are trying to do. We are trying to deal with this iniquity in some way or another. Often we are denying it. We're trying to push it down and ignore it. Sometimes we're trying to directly fix it, but often we are just trying to outrun it. And what I want us to hear today is that Jesus is the only thing that can clean us up on the inside. Is the only thing that can clean us up on the inside so that we can make uh, live for the way that we are made to live. That's at the heart of our message today. Now, chapters 8 through 10 in the book of Hebrews talk about how Christ is a greater mediator of a greater covenant. That's the language that you've been hearing. I'm sure you've been picking up on. Joel talked last week about Jesus bringing a new covenant, a new arrangement between God and his people. He's relating to his people in a new way. It's really a restoration of what God had always promised that he would do. It's the fulfillment of all that he's been doing. But there's this new arrangement to establish a better type of relationship with us. That was what Joel showed us last week. And this week in chapter 9, we're going to see again that the old covenant, that the covenant God made with Moses at Mount Sinai with Israel was temporary. It was always temporary. And it was insufficient to ultimately cleanse us and to deal with this iniquity and to renew us, and to ultimately bring us to God himself. 
I want to focus today on the very last verse that I read in our passage in verse 14. And this is, I want us to see, this is, this is kind of what the message is today, where the author says, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, hear this, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. That is the key verse I want us to look at today. The old covenant with Moses, now this new covenant with Jesus. This is the dynamic that's being discussed. This new covenant aims at relationship with God, a deeper relationship. The whole Old Testament, the whole old covenant system with all its sacrifices, it pointed to our need for purity, but the new covenant actually brings final and continual purity. And the purpose of that is so that we can be restored to serving the living God. So that's what I want us to look at today. We're going to look at being created to serve, our corrupted service, and finally a clean conscience. So first, created to serve. I want us to go back to verse uh, 14 of chapter 9, where the author tells us Jesus purifies us to serve the living God. That is the purpose that is given here. Now, why is this the goal? Well, it's because redemption, all that God has always been doing in the world, is about restoring us to our created purposes. God created us to serve him as the living God. That is the, the fundamental human calling or vocation on our life. That is our purpose, to serve the living God. You, each of you, was created to serve the living God. Humanity was made and set apart from the rest of creation sanctified, you could say, from all of creation to serve as those who bear God's image in the world. We were tasked with exercising dominion over the earth and subduing it and cultivating it and uh, building this holy society to the glory of God, to labor in all of our lives so that the, the world would flourish and become beautiful and all would benefit from this, um, this labor that we do together, that we would labor in love for the good of all people. Um, this is this, the, the calling of our life, and that, that's a service to God. It requires effort and dedication and submission and sacrifice. This is the human calling. Now, I want to say something here, uh, two things briefly about service that's really important for us to understand, because it's so easy to hear that term, we're called to serve God, and to think of something like, um, like maybe like a waiter or something. When you hear that, you're supposed to serve God. Or you think, okay, I'm, I'm like, I'm kind of running all these errands and God's sitting there, go get my slippers, you know, go get my food, go get me a refill or something like that, right? Uh, if that's how you're thinking about service, um, then, then put that out of your mind. That's not what we mean when we say we're made to serve God. Because first and foremost, you need to understand that our service to God flows out of our first being served by God. That is fundamental to what it means to be human. God created us. He gave us life. It is a gift. It, all of creation is this overflow of God's life and love and joy. That's why the author of Hebrews says that he is the living God, the God who has life in himself. He does not need us. Our service to him is not because he needs servants, because he's sitting around and he doesn't want to do any labor, and this way we can do it for him. That is not what we mean. We are created to serve the living God, but only as those who are first and foremost fundamentally served by God and given many, many gifts. And so secondly, this means then our service is actually participation 
with God in what he is doing in the world. It is not giving something to him he does not have. It is not adding to his life in any way. We do not serve God like that. He is not lacking. He does not need us. He invites us into the joy of what he is doing. And we serve him by participating with him as the living God. Think of a co-laborer, you could say. Those who are building something together or farmers plowing a field and working side by side or maybe better, a, a father who allows his child to help him with his task that he is fully capable of doing on his own, but he brings that child into the joy of that labor with him. That's how God invites us to join him in his work and to serve him, to make the world a good place and a beautiful place. That is our purpose. That's what you were made for, to serve the living God as a participant with him and as one who is ultimately served by God. Now, here's the thing. Because we're created to serve God like this, it is impossible for you to live your life where you're not serving something. It's baked into who you are. You can't not serve something. Double negative there, right? You can't not serve. You must serve something. There you go. Right? Bob Dylan, who Trevor's quoted many times, you're going to have to serve somebody. That famous song. You're going to give your effort, your dedication, your submission to somebody or something. We either serve the living God and co-labor with him, or we serve created things, false gods. We call those idols, your career, your beauty, your safety, your family's safety, um, you know, your prosperity, your fame, your self-authentication, whatever it is, you're going to serve something. And often you're going to get wrapped up in some ideology that's going along with that, you know serving humanity or your nation or your community or more than likely, because this is really at the bottom of all our other service, you're going to serve yourself. That's why John Lennon didn't like Bob Dylan's song. I just learned this. He wrote a song to combat that song and he said, serve yourself. That was his song. Don't serve somebody, serve you. That's really, you know, who, nobody else is going to serve you. He says, serve yourself. And so he says, pursue a life of gratifying your own desires. Submit to that. Dedicate yourself to that. Give effort to serving yourself. When you do not understand your purpose is to serve the living God, you end up serving yourself and it just leads to uh, ultimately a life of, of death. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying. We, have, we commit these dead works is the way he puts it. Works that lead to death. And it just brings decline everywhere. I mean, it, uh, culturally, it leads to decline. When everybody just serves themselves, it just leads to decline. I was thinking about this earlier just noticing some of the roads, there's more and more trash piling up. And I'm thinking, why, why can't we clean this up? And you think, well, the city's going to have to hire people to do this. And that's not great work. And they probably can't pay that much. And who's, you know, a lot of people are like, I don't want to do this work. I'll... So, you know, it just, nobody has this sense of like this enduring pride in our community that like we want this place to look beautiful over the long term. And so, you know, everyone's trying to pursue their own life and their own desires. And who wants to clean up that trash? No one. And so it just, it builds, right? And it brings this decay into the community. And of course, individually, what happens when we just pursue our own desires? It just leads to the self-absorption that um, leads to constant dissatisfaction and emptiness and despair. So you got to serve somebody. Ultimately, if you don't serve God, you're going to start serving yourself. And that just leads to dead works. And so it's, it's important for us to ask this morning, what are we serving? You know, what, what are you serving? God, humanity, the community, your family, your kids, or, you know, ultimately, are you just serving yourself? And to, to really answer that question honestly, we, we can't just 
um, think about like what we think we want to serve, like our ideals. We actually look, have to look at our actions in our lives. Like what are, what are we doing that demonstrates service to God, participation to God, or are we just living in service to ourselves? Friends, you were made to serve the living God. That's actually really good news. It provides clarity in a time when people are just a lot trying to, what am, what am I here for? And it leads to so much despair. Friends, good news is you were made to serve the living God. And the author of Hebrews tells us that we're made for that, but there's a problem here, that our consciences are defiled. So what do we do about that? That's the next thing I want us to kind of explore a little bit is this corrupted service. And so now I'm going to look at verses 9, or excuse me, 1 through 10, the kind of bulk of our passage where we get a window into the problem here. And so if you go back to those verses, you look at how the author draws out lessons from the old covenant system. In verses one through five, um, he's explaining the architecture of the tabernacle. When Israel was, was wandering around and they had an impermanent place where God would dwell with them. And they had these different sections that he explains here, this sort of outer courtyard and then the holy place and then this most holy place. And there's these curtains separating that. And he describes what's in the most holy place and the holy place. And he's talking about the furniture, the items and all that. And then in verses 6 through 10, he talks about how um, Israel was prevented from going into the most holy place where God dwelt. That priests could go into the holy place and the high priest could go into the most holy place, but only once a year. There's this, there's this inability of humanity to enter into the very presence of God and enjoy life with him. And so in verses 8 through 10, listen to what he says again. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. So he starts in verse eight by saying, by this, what does he mean by that? He's talking about all this system. He's just been explaining the, the old covenant tabernacle system. And he says, this system is actually something the Holy Spirit gave us to teach us some things. And what is it that the Holy Spirit teaches us? Well, first that the holy place, the place where God dwells, um, is not yet open to us. Why not? Well, because we need forgiveness and cleansing. That's what all people need. That's why there was all this washing that they did and food and drink uh, regulations and sacrifices, right? And the priest had to sacrifice a bull for himself and, uh, and then also for his family. And then he had to offer a goat for Israel. And there's all these sacrifices that had to happen so that just once a year he could go into the holy place. Um, but this system, he says, also teaches that it was temporary and ineffective, that that ultimately was not the way that God was going to deal with human sin and our corruption. And so in verse 9, he says, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worship. That system couldn't do it. It couldn't deal with human iniquity. So here's the logic leading up to verse 14. We are corrupt sinners, he says. Our consciences are unclean. And we cannot be purified by that system or really any system at all that people come up with. And therefore, in verse 14, we can't properly serve the living God. We can't do it. We are in, uh, unable to serve him as we were created to do. Let me explore those three points uh, very briefly. 
He says, first, that we are corrupt sinners. Our desires are bent so that they are turned in on themselves. That is the teaching of all of scripture. That's the assumption at play in this whole system that the Holy Spirit uses to teach us. We are bent and turned in on ourselves. That's another way of saying that all of us at the core of who we are, are self-absorbed. You may have trouble with that statement, but um, you know, think about all the things that are being said today about how we need to raise children in safety and have strong bonds of attachment and love and trust. Those are all really important things that hugely affect our development and our behavior down the road. But, um, but one thing that we have to recognize is that the person who is raised in the most encouraging and comforting home with the most security and provision and safety that you could ever imagine, even those people still turn out to show that there's, there's greed and self-absorption. I mean, they, nothing can eradicate that, right? You can have the, the best upbringing and yet there's still going to be self-absorption. So all that stuff about attachment love, it's super important. I'm not downplaying that. I'm just saying it doesn't ultimately deal with the brokenness of the human heart. We do not desire as we should. We have misdirected loves. We run, we love the wrong things and we have disordered loves. We love things in the wrong proportion or in the wrong order, right? At bottom, we have a self-love problem that throws off all else. Think about uh, maybe an example to help us see this even further. Think about your love if you have children for, for your kids. It's a good thing to love your children. But often our love for kids can hide this sort of lurking um, self-love that's actually at play, right? We can, we can say, yeah, I want my kids safety and we want, I want their success, I want their happiness. And a lot of our life can look like that's really what's most important to us. But underneath that often is this deep desire to feel good about ourselves as parents. And we know that because of the self-justification that often comes out when things don't go quite as they should in our kids aren't turning out as well as we think they should. And whose fault is that? It's them. And we, we defend our, ourselves. And suddenly you realize that there's something else going on here that's really driving this. You can think of that in, in a million different scenarios, something that looks like a good love and is a good love, but at bottom, really underneath that often is this self-love that's at play. And Christianity teaches that unless our highest love, our highest desire is to know and enjoy God, all of our other desires get out of whack. And so that's why the second thing that he sees, we have this unclean conscience. Sinners act such that our consciences get polluted and unclean, defiled, right? And there are two dimensions of this. First, it means that our hearts are, and our moral compass is off, right? We, we, what we think is good and right is often not quite calibrated to what is actually good and right. We take issue maybe directly with what God says, or maybe we kind of shade a little bit. Well, yes, bad but not so bad as maybe God seems to make it sometimes or or we say things like that's what that person did is terrible it can never be forgiven well that's that's off from God's moral compass right and so um our moral compass is not is not calibrated properly but there's another dimension to this defiled conscience which is that um even if we just toss that first point and we say let's let's assume that all the things you believe about what's right and wrong are correct um the reality is none of us live up to our own rules do we? None of us live up to the things that we say we believe are right and wrong. We're all at bottom hypocrites. We don't act the right way according to our own standard. We don't desire the right things according to our own standard. We don't lack the, uh, we lack the character 
according to our own standard. And so our consciences then condemn us, don't they? We live with this sense of you're, you know, you're not right. You've done things you shouldn't have done. You, you aren't who you're supposed to be. That's a defiled conscience. And that's where this guilt and this shame and this fear crop up, crop up in our lives. Whatever you serve, you serve with a sense of failure in some way. And you feel this shame. Whatever you serve, you, you feel this defectiveness, this brokenness, this dirt. And so there's the fear. Whatever you serve, you live with certain fear about what this guilt and shame means for you. Now, I know this because um, sometimes I just sit quietly. What happens when you just sit quietly is all this stuff starts bubbling up, doesn't it? It's that anxiety about what you've done, who you think you're supposed to be and you're not, and what's this going to mean? And, we, and, and you tell me this is what's going on in you too. So I know this is not just me. This is the human condition. And so this is why, thirdly, we cannot serve the living God. We can't serve the living God as the way we're uh, as as we're supposed to. We've got this unclean conscience, and that bent moral compass obviously makes it hard to serve the living God properly, right? Because we don't always know that, uh, we don't always know what the right thing is, and we don't do it right. But also this guilt and shame that's underneath, um, that's constantly condemning us, it drives us to live in ways that are distorted. Right. This is what I was saying at the very beginning. We start trying to outrun our shame and guilt. Uh, think about uh, if you've ever played sports and you've been on a team and you you blew it on a big play and it really cost your team. Has anybody ever done that? Some of you. I know some of you because I've played basketball with you. Uh, no, just play. Uh, but you know what it's like when you just you, and you beat yourself up and you, this play is like, oh man, I screwed up, and you, you're sitting there thinking about how everybody's mad at you and. You, and, and then you're like, I got to make up for this. And you kind of tighten up and that affects your ability to play the game well because you're not playing loose anymore and you just make more mistakes, right? We do that in life too. I mean, it, it comes out in parenting. You lose your temper with your kids one time. And so then you parent out of that guilt. And that can look in a lot, a lot of different ways. It can be all of a sudden you become like overly warm and indulge the kids because now you're kind of making up for the way you, you kind of blew it. Or you kind of double down and you're like, I'm not going to, you know, I didn't do no, this is how it's supposed to be. And you get kind of harder with them and it distorts your parenting. That guilty conscience distorts your service, your, your way of living in the world. So all our, and this is true of all of life, our service is corrupted by our unclean conscience. And so we need to have our consciences cleansed. And that's the final thing we need to see today is that Jesus brings a clean conscience. And so turn to verses 11 through 14. Um, we cannot heal our iniquity. We can't cleanse ourselves. You can't fix your conscience. It doesn't work. You can't outrun it by working harder or, you can, or trying to silence it by doing more good. You can't correct it through moral improvement. All our works ultimately result in death. And our conscience tells us that our life is demanded of us. It demands our blood. So nothing can clean our conscience but Christ. Look at verses 11 and following. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Jesus is the great high priest that brings us into the presence of of the living God. Not like the old covenant where once a year, one person got to go into the most holy place, 
where God's presence was manifested with cloud and fire, Jesus brings us into the very presence of the living God once for all. He entered permanently, not once a year, permanently, and he brings us with him into the presence of God. He offered his own life as a sacrifice to forgive and cleanse us for an eternal redemption, not a temporary redemption, not one that deal, deals externally with ritual and purity, but a redemption that continues forever because of Christ's blood, not the blood of goats and bulls and calves. And so he says in verse 13, if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctified for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. That whole system was temporary and external. It only dealt with the outside, but Jesus purifies us from the very core of who we are, and he brings a permanent forgiveness that can silence your conscience. He brings this permanent cleansing that can renew you and begin to deal with that bentness and straighten you out over time so that you start desiring the right things. You start being able to discern things according to God's law. That's what we saw last week. God is writing his law on our hearts. And all of this, friends, comes as a gift. Jesus accomplished this by offering himself up as this sacrifice without any blemish, right? He had no blemishes. That's what the author tells us. Uh, you know, in the Old Testament sacrifice system, that meant, you know, the, the lamb looks good, no unhealth looking in them. But with Jesus, it means at the very core of who he is, he had no iniquity, no impure conscience, but he lived a life of perfect service to God. And yet he offered himself up in the power of the Holy Spirit as a sacrifice for us. And he died so that his blood would secure for us this cleansing and forgiveness. And so that our blood does not need to be shed, that we don't need to remain in death. So Jesus, the author is telling us, is greater than this whole system because he purifies us from the inside. He gives us this clean conscience. He forgives us and then he deals with our bentness and corruption. He straightens us out by the power of the Spirit. He heals our iniquity so that we can be set apart again and renewed for service to the living God. And we do that, as Trevor was explaining earlier in our service, that God, you know, Jesus cleansed the temple so that God could dwell with us. We do that in the power of the Spirit who now resides in us, that we have now become God's temple, and the Spirit is in our lives so that we can walk and serve God who is living forever. Only Jesus can cleanse us. Only he can renew us and restore us to participating in what God is doing in the world. And so today we are called to receive him and rest on him wholly as our high priest and as our sacrifice for sin. And that means to either for the first time or again to trust him that you are forgiven. You are cleansed. Trust him. Your, when your conscience condemns you, he is greater than our hearts. His blood says you are not guilty in the way that your conscience is telling you. And so then you can be freed to serve the living God. So what do we actually, what does this actually mean? So um, I got this from Trevor and Joel when we were talking earlier this week, but um, it, this means first and foremost that we adopt a next play mentality because we're forgiven. Adopt the next play mentality. What, so going back to sports, Trevor uh, was mentioning this cornerback for the Chiefs 
in their game against the Ravens a couple weeks ago, where uh, this quarterback, who's one of the best, gave up a big play. And it was really looking bad for the Ravens coming back. They were about to score as a long play. The cornerback stopped him pretty close to the end zone. And so, you know, he felt pretty bad about that. His team's like, oh, my gosh, you're blowing it for us. It's probably how he was thinking, right? But uh, two plays later, uh, he caused this game-saving fumble on the goal line that prevented the Ravens from scoring and, and helped them out big time. And as they were talking with him, I think, after the game, he was talking about how he was able to make that big play after making a big screw-up. And it's basically like, because I just have to – I learn because of my coach and how he supports me and the team, you just look at the next thing you've got to do, and you don't let that thing – shape and drive how you're playing on the field, right? So that's football. But I mean, that's kind of what we need to do as Christians, right? Is when you screw up and we do, and your conscience condemns you, you got to say, all right, like Jesus has dealt with me. And so I got to focus on the next thing that God's put before me that I can participate with him in the world and what he's doing. And I don't have to be condemned by that. I don't have to let that drive the way I now try to live in the world. The pressure is off, friends. If you have faith in Christ, you don't need to be perfect. You can honestly admit your faults. You don't have to hide or pretend or defend yourself because of the grace of God to us in Christ. So we have a next moment mentality. But then secondly, um, we've got to remember the renewing power of the spirit that comes through Christ's blood. Um, It's easy to get down on ourselves when we see ourselves doing the same screwy up, screwed up things over and over again, right? It's like, that sounds great, Derek, but my conscience is telling me, yeah, you haven't really been changed because you're still doing that thing. And you need to hear that the renewing power of the spirit is something that happens over time. And God promises that his spirit is in you and that Christ has cleansed you and he's giving you a new heart. And that takes time. So there's grace, even for your failure to grow up immediately. The pressure is off. You can be humble and acknowledge your failures and yet confident that God is working in you. And then finally, we need to then join God in what he's doing in the world. That's what it means to serve the living God. Take time and step back and evaluate how we're living our lives. Are we serving God? Is is that really what our life is all about? Participating with what God is doing in the world or are we falling into serving ourselves? some other ideology or something else, God invites us into this beautiful life. It's a hard life. There are hard things that have to happen. There's sacrifice, yes, but it's a beautiful life of joining him and what he is doing. As we go to the table, um, this is the place that we remember that Christ sacrificed himself for us, right? This is literally what is pictured in the bread and wine. Uh, In in the old covenant, the the animal was put forward and the blood was drained and the body was put on the altar to be burned. And and here we see that same sort of separation of Christ's body and blood, both given for us. His blood shed for us to cleanse us and to purify us from the inside. His body, his life given so that we can live again. And in this meal, as we participate in faith, the spirit actually ushers us up in a unique way into the very presence of the living God, our Father. And so I invite you to eat of this meal, take in this life, trusting that God has forgiven you and cleansed your conscience and be empowered by it, be nourished by it to go out and serve the living. Let's pray together.